Hey listeners, this is Editing Barry coming at you with a quick note. So at the time of recording this particular episode, Jason was reconfiguring the feng shui of his recording space. We've been trying to work out our kind of remote recording situation. And in the process, he inadvertently reoriented his microphone so that it was facing away from him. As a result, he was speaking into the back of the microphone this entire episode, which has had grave impact on the quality of the audio. And for that, I apologize. Hi, I'm Barry Hamaguchi. And I'm Jason Marcos. This week, we're spending time with a couple of our faves, Kelly Rowland and Mary J. Blige, and exploring two musical detours that each earned critical acclaim, but failed to resonate with the fans. When these ladies of soul crossed the pond for new inspiration, would their fans follow? This is Flop Redeemer. Hey, Jason. Hey. Hey, Barry. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm drinking today. I'm trying yeah. something new. It's 10 a.m. on a Sunday. I've had a protein bar and coffee already, so now I'm ready to move into my beer. I'm hoping this will improve my flow. Well, feel my flow. Stupid. Anyway, sorry. Um. (laughs) I've just been going through these recordings. I think that I have like a, a little bit of a hesitancy and like a halting nature to the way that I talk when I'm completely sober because I am overthinking what I'm saying. At the same time, I don't want to underthink what I'm saying and speak too off the cuff and perhaps say things that are problematic and embarrassing. <laughs> so I'm trying to find the balance, the fine line between completely hesitant and sober and completely off the cuff and just like passed out drunk. Yeah. Right now, I think I'm good. How was your week? It's good. Um... Is there any point to talking about how our week was in these times, in these troubling times? I mean, I guess we could talk about like maybe what is some of the music or pop culture that's kind of distracting us from whatever's going on. Mm-hmm. Did you listen to Taylor Swift's new album? I did. I actually really enjoy it. Okay. I mean, a lot of people have commented that it's, you know, it's a product of quarantine. And um, I really responded to it in that way. Like it was just very soothing. That Taylor Swift recorded it in quarantine or that it's like made for people in quarantine. I mean, she said this was her response to being in quarantine. So I assume that meant that she recorded it in quarantine. So this is like a real fast turnaround for her. I think so. I I, I think, I mean, I I haven't, unlike the subject matter in our podcast, I have not done all of the research on this, but that was my understanding. Um, I have to admit that I don't follow Taylor Swift very closely. Same. You know, she's not one of my go-to artists that I love and adore. Same. I I gave the album kind of a once-through listen while I was working on Friday, and I like it better than, like, the last two albums that she's done, I think. The ones that were much more centered in trying to be a pop artist, I think that this one, it kind of maybe bridges the gap between her country output and some of, like, the heavier pop output that she was doing for a while. But then again, I listened to the previous two albums over again, and those weren't bad either, I guess. Like, did you like Lover and Reputation? I I don't know. Okay. No, that's fair. I don't, I don't, I don't follow her. I mean, I know, I know like the song Lover, 
Is it sad that the first time I liked Lover was the Sean Mendez remix? Where no, that's they do it that's together, fair. right? And that's fair. And um, I don't know. I I generally have kind of kept her at arm's length. I acknowledge that she's an incredible songwriting talent. She's incredibly talented. She has great gowns, beautiful gowns. <laughs> yes. Um, she's not my favorite. I mean, ugh, this is gonna. We're all fun. we're all we're all this is a safe space. I really like the Ryan Adams cover of 1989, like the whole album. I liked I liked 1989. Yeah. I didn't like the singles that she released from like Reputation and Lover. Actually, I didn't even like when that 1989 album came out, the first single was um wasn't it Shake It Off? Yeah. I feel like the lead singles off of her last 3 like pop albums have really turned me off from listening to the full albums. But then when I get into, like, listening to the albums, I'm like, oh, like, that lead single isn't representative of, like, the album as a whole. Yeah. Because, like, Reputation led off with Look What You Made Me Do. And that was such a weird song for her to me. But Reputation has the song Delicate, which I could listen to on repeat one for a full, like, eight-hour workday. I probably know songs on that album. I, I it, it is one of those things where... I'm aware of it. It wasn't something that was necessarily in my rotation. But like if I put on, I'm a person who likes to put on like curated playlists. And so I'll I'll be sitting working and I'm like, oh, what is this song? I really like it. And I'm like, oh, it's Taylor Swift. It's like, okay, that makes sense. But, um, you know, I don't, I don't know what the songs are. So I don't really know anything about reputation. I mean, I know, I know the snake and all of the, you know. I know all of that. I, I, I don't follow Taylor Swift. I follow Gaze. And as a follower of Gaze, I am aware of her output. And I'm aware of, like, what's happening and the general sort of conversation. I mean, she's definitely not in your wheelhouse. It, it's funny. I feel like this album... Again, for Aretha for Aretha to note her for her um, beautiful gowns. gowns is very telling. Yeah. And to your to your point that you made last week about your kind of turning your back on pop music a little bit and turning more deeply towards like neo soul and like big singers taylor taylor swift does not necessarily check any boxes for you yeah i mean but but i mean all that being said i i liked i liked some of the stuff when she was younger you know like some of her first stuff i thought it was fun i mean like i was young (laughs) i thought it was fun you know like there's there's some fun stuff in there yeah um because i think she is trying to be artsy I mean, I hate it when, I I guess Ariana Grande did this too, but when people do all the song titles in lowercase letters, I hate that. You are, Barry, you are so old. You are so old. E.E. Cummings did it and it's done. Bell Hooks did it. (laughs) Yeah, and (laughs) that doesn't mean that Ariana Grande should do it. It doesn't mean that Taylor Swift should do it. I guess I just, I mean, what's the implication of that when, when artists decide to title all their songs in lowercase letters? Like what, what's the intention there? Capitalization is dead. I don't know. (laughs) Is it a statement about like typing on your phone? I don't, like, I really don't understand it. Even your phone will auto capitalize sentences. I do think it is, it's a rejection to some extent of like formality. Mm like of it being a product, you know, in a digital age where barely anything is handwritten, how do you signal that something is crafted or is not, I mean, it's polished, but maybe more heartfelt or something, you know what I mean? More off the cuff. And I think 
I think that it's a signifier. Chicago Manual of Style be damned, you know? Yeah, it's like it's like when people use the letter U. Ugh. Or, which I, you know, I don't, I, I know, I don't, I don't. It's one thing, I mean, that's the thing, yeah, it's funny because it's like, Prince does it, great. Did MC Hammer do it? MC Hammer did it, right? I don't know. Wasn't that song a U? You Can't Touch This? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, that would have been weird if it was spelled out. Destiny's Child did it? Cater to you? Was Cater to you a number two? I think so. It was multiple. Okay. I think as 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 we entered the digital age, it became more less about like I don't want to say street, but like less about trying to visualize like a like a dialect or something <laughs> like like the way something would be said versus like by the time you get to Destiny's Child and it's like okay, this is now we're typing on our phones. We have T nine and you're trying to like save like number of keystrokes and. I think it was a comment on that. It removes the formality. It removes the formality a little yeah, bit. Yeah, and I think it was kind of like you'd be sending. It was supposed to be like this is a dirty text. You're gonna send. Oh, I see. I see. I mean, I don't know. Again, we could ask. <laughs> we could. We could ask Beyonce. I'm sure she would have many thoughts about when I wrote that album or when I did. This. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure she'd have a lot of thoughts. We'll at Beyonce in, yeah. our, in our mentions yeah. this week on social media. See if she responds. I don't have any flopper tractions for this week. Full disclosure, I have not finished editing the previous episode, so I don't actually know what's going into the final cut that I would possibly need to correct. But as of right now, we're all good on that front. Yeah, and we do want to remind people that, you know, we do have a website, flopperdeemer.com, and we will be posting links to most of the references that we make you know, in this episode, previous episodes and episodes going forward. And that's one of my favorite things to do. And preparing for each episode is to like, go back and relive some of like, you know, the performance, the live performances, or, you know, interviews, you know, with the artists at the time, and even retrospectives, like it's, it's been really fascinating. And, and, you know, I, I always think I have a really good memory. But, you know, going back, sometimes I, you know, you realize like, oh, I got that date wrong or I thought it was like at this time. And, you know, in my memory, this happened and she wasn't great. And then you go back and you watch it and it's like, oh, she was amazing. Like what? You yeah. Know? And, and so it's been it's been really fun. So but yeah, those will all be up on our website. Cool. Um, so let's take a break. And when we get back, we'll go straight into it. All right, so we're back. Um, today I'm going to be talking about Kelly Rowland's 2010 single, Commander, off of her 2011 album, Here I Am. We all know who Kelly Rowland is. She is infamously the second lead vocalist of Destiny's Child. <laughs> Full disclosure, I probably spent way too much time researching the provenance of that whole second lead vocalist claim. I think it was an MTV profile of destiny's child when they were first coming out when they still had the four original members and the clip kind of resurfaced on vine several years ago and it made the rounds because in it they're all introducing themselves kelly Rowland says i'm kelly i'm the second lead vocalist of destiny's child and if you're not looking at kelly and you're looking at latoya luckett and beyonce who are off to the right they do this real quick side eye. Then Beyonce like rolls her eyes, smirks, turns her head and coughs. And it was the shade that just engulfed the earth. And I live, I live for it. <laughs> 
more recently, like within the past four or five years, Latavia and Latoya have both done interviews where they're asked about that clip. And they both kind of say like, they don't really know what was happening in that exact moment. Like maybe they were all just tired or something because Latoya and Latavia both say like, that's what Kelly said. They were all given their titles. They all had established roles within the group. And that was just Kelly's label for herself, you know, like her management approved label, it seems. But nonetheless, it it goes down in infamy. So I always refer to Kelly Rowland as the second lead vocalist of Destiny's Child. Um, (laughs) So when we're moving into this era where she's releasing this song, Commander, a couple of things are happening with her. She's had some solo success, right? She had a really successful collaboration single with Nelly in 2002, the song Dilemma. And that song went to number one on the Billboard charts in that year. And it actually fast-tracked Kelly Rowland's solo career so that Kelly's solo album actually comes out before Beyonce's solo album. And I'll ask you this question, Jason, is like, was there an alternate universe where Kelly Rowland was a more successful solo artist than Beyonce? Because look at it this way. In 2002, Kelly Rowland comes out with Dilemma. That song goes to number one. Simultaneously, Beyonce's trying to make Work It Out happen. Not a good song. Not a good song. And in this period of time when Dilemma takes off, it's like they fast track Kelly Rowland's album. They bring her release date up by like six months. And so she has a very short period of time to actually record that first album that she puts out. Later on, and we'll see this later, that she wants to take more time with her subsequent albums because she felt like Simply Deep was just so rushed. Mm -hmm. Obviously, the tables turn in favor of Beyonce, but... Yeah. I mean, it it didn't necessarily feel inevitable that Beyonce was going to be on top. I mean, I don't... I mean, she had the narrative. She sort of had the, the ego. And I don't necessarily mean ego in a bad way, but... It wasn't a given. Mm-hmm. And and with Work It Out not being great, and with Kelly's debut, that's the one uh, with the video. Um, uh, Stole, where she's texting. No, a Dilemma is the one where she's like texting into like an Excel spreadsheet. Yes, yes. And and Patti LaBelle plays her mom, I think. Oh, oh God. See, I, did, I... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, but it was with Nelly, right? And like, yeah. And it's like, yeah, like she seemed like a star. She seemed like a breakout. And especially like at that time, I was thinking, well, if this is the type of music Beyonce wants to make, if Work It Out is what she thinks is going to make it big for her. And again, to speak about like uh, some kind of ego, Mm -hmm. I can imagine Beyonce being, being very much more in control of what she wants her music to sound like. And if that was what her judgment call was, I was very worried for her at that point. Yeah. But nonetheless, like Kelly has this head start kind of in her solo career. But between the years of her first and second album, 2007's Miss Kelly, at that point, Miss Kelly is coming out after B-Day. So at this point, Beyonce is it. Has taken over the world. Beyonce has landed. You know, Kelly Rowland recently, um, as part of her mentorship on The Voice Australia, she had talked about living in Beyonce's shadow for all those years, that it really made her second guess a lot of her musical decisions, her fashion decisions, her image decisions, that everything had to be cross-checked against, would Beyonce do this? Wouldn't Beyonce do this? If I do this and Beyonce would do this, what's the media going to say? Are they going to compare me to Beyonce? Of course they're going to compare me to Beyonce. You know, so it becomes very troubling to her. And I think you'll see this roll out as things go on because her second album, Ms. Kelly, is delayed 
it eventually releases in 2007, kind of like six months to a year later than it was originally intended. Kelly says that it originally had too many like mid-tempo ballads and that she really wanted it to be something that you could nod your head to. She wanted more party songs. And so they reworked it. And that album launches with the single um, Like This featuring Eve. That album and that song don't do very well for Kelly Rowland. I was going to say, I was like, I don't remember that. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's a good song. I Listening to it now, I'm like, oh, this is a good song. But again, going back into like our Ashanti discussion of like Beyonce and not Beyonce, Kelly Rowland is not Beyonce. Mm-hmm. Her second single called Work actually does very well in like the UK and Europe. Helped in no small part by a remix that's done by the Freemasons. Yeah, I was going to say, I remember dancing to that in the club. Yeah, and that song starts to get club play. It Again, it doesn't do well stateside, but it does very well overseas. And I think that's where Kelly Rowland first starts to see her potential marketing her music more heavily in Europe. So in the aftermath of Miss Kelly... In January 2009, Kelly announces that she has parted ways with Matthew Knowles and um, his company, Music World Entertainment. And that's the company that's been managing her since her her Destiny's Child days. Famously Beyonce's dad. Famously yeah. Beyonce's dad. Also famously, I mean, remember what happened to LaToya and Latavia in their Destiny's Child days by saying that they they felt like it wasn't a great business decision for them to be managed by Matthew Knowles. That didn't work out well for them. But at this point in 2009, Destiny's Child is on like permanent hiatus and Kelly is focused entirely on her solo career and she just feels like it's time to go. And two months after that, she announces that she has also parted way with her longtime record label, Columbia. And although the initial like press releases around the split were um, stated to be very amicable and that it was a mutual decision later on, Kelly would in interviews say that actually her label ended her contract because they were dissatisfied with the performance of the Miss Kelly album. Mm -hmm. And so in 2010, Kelly Rowland moves over to CAA for her management and universal Motown as her label. So she's joining people like Melanie Fiona, Nelly at this point, I think, is with Universal Motown and Busta Rhymes. Okay. I think because of the success that she saw overseas, it's around 2008 that she first meets David Guetta. And she hears the instrumental track to the song When Love Takes Over in a South of France club, and she just falls in love with it. You know, she's been very vocal about wanting to remain true to her R&B urban roots. But in regards to this track, she says she heard it and she just felt so emotional about it and she didn't understand why. And she really felt like there was there was a soul to the heart of the track. So she approaches David Guetta and asks him if she can she can write the vocals and record the vocals for this track. So she teams up with a songwriting team, um, Nervo, and they write the track, they record the track. Kelly Rowland's label at the time, so this is 2008, so she's technically still with Columbia. Reportedly, according to the songwriting team that she worked with, her label did not love this song. And so they shelved it. Mm -hmm. And it's not until David Guetta releases his solo album, One Love, in 2009, that that song is kind of unearthed from the vault and it achieves this huge worldwide success. Again, it's a much bigger success overseas than it is in the United States. I think it gets a lot of play in like dance clubs in the United States. Mm-hmm. In terms of radio play and in terms of pop play, it really doesn't impact here. Yeah. I mean, that was, you remember going out, like that just wasn't like Euro style dance 
was not a thing here. It was like Euro trash. It was it was looked down upon. It was quote unquote gay. Yeah. Right. Like like mainstream people loathed it. And I think it's it's also telling about the time that we were going into where the whole EDM craze hadn't quite touched down here yet. Mm-hmm. You know, I think we were still used to hip hop beats that were like a little more irregular, a little more elaborate. Mm-hmm. And when EDM kind of touches down, that's kind of like, in my recollection anyway, that was like the resurgence of the four on the floor. Mm-hmm. Very European, very disco sounding mm-hmm. kind of mm-hmm. beats that are very easy to dance to. I think I told you this a long time ago, but in college I had taken this course on gay and lesbian perspectives in popular music. And in talking about disco from like the 70s, my professor had talked about um, a correlation between a resurgence in four on the floor and dance music with like recessions. Huh. So like in the 70s when interest rates were skyrocketing and there was all this like financial uncertainty, disco music was really popular. And then kind of in this era, when we move into 2008 and the recession that happens because of like the financial crisis then, I think you do see a lot more of that music kind of coincidentally again touching down in the united states Mm -hmm. he made this correlation that like there's such a certainty to four on the floor it's like even if you have no rhythm you can dance to four on the floor music because the beat is just so apparent yeah it's like one two three four with a four on the floor song you can clap on one and three or you can clap on two and four it's fine you can clap on one two three and four if you want even though everyone knows you you clap on two and four public service announcement clap on two and four so when it comes to when love takes over i feel like kelly Rowland is not given enough credit for helping the mainstream david Guetta in the u.s yeah interesting prior to prior to working with kelly Rowland, you know david Guetta. i think he was pretty popular in like dance music scenes he was very popular in europe but prior to that all of his collaborations were not with like mainstream u.s artists right Mm-hmm. But after working with Kelly Rowland, that's when he sees greater success with like Sexy Bitch with Akon, mm-hmm. Titanium with Sia. He does Without You with Usher. And all those songs chart very, very well in mm-hmm. the United States. Mm-hmm. And I think that that really does get us into the 2008, 2009 realm of like, oh, EDM is touching down. Sort of kicks off this whole new era, really. Because like when you mentioned Akon, you mentioned Usher. Previously, those kinds of sort of R&B hip-hop artists wouldn't have touched EDM yeah. with a 10-foot pole. Exactly. And Kelly Rowland really was the first one. Yeah. So based on the success of this, this first collaboration with David Guetta, she uses this as kind of the jumping off point for her next album, which is going to become 2011's Here I Am. And she goes back into the studio with David Guetta. So... When Love Takes Over is very much like a Euro song to me. Mm-hmm. When that song came out, I clearly imagined Kelly Rowland having kind of like a Donna Summer type of career. Because Donna Summer kind of gains prominence working with Giorgio Moroder in the 70s and doing this very sexy, but also very European kind of dance music. And I even feel like there's a similarity in Donna Summer and Kelly Rowland's voices. Mm-hmm. They look alike. Mm-hmm. I feel like Kelly Rowland could say, actually yeah. Kelly Rowland could actually play Donna Summer in like a biopic. Someone get on that. She could perform all the songs too. I'd be there. <laughs> yeah. So I had really imagined that maybe Kelly Rowland's career would take that turn. 
But in doing Commander, you know, she wanted to kind of hedge her bets. She wanted to bridge the gap between dance music and R&B. So in addition to working with David Guetta on that track, she also worked with Rico Love. So Rico Love, he's responsible for songs like Energy by Carrie Hilson. Um, He also did Sweet Dreams by Beyonce and uh, Just a Dream by Nelly. So he's got a little bit more credibility in the R&B side of things. And I think you can hear that reflected in the way that Commander is different from When Love Takes Over. That Commander has a heaviness to the beat. There's a swagger. Yeah, that definitely feels more R&B than pure EDM at that point. So ultimately, there's a bunch of problems with the release of this song. One of the things that happens is that the song is actually leaked and then the music video, like an unfinished version of the music video is leaked. And this is a period of time where leaks are a huge problem for the music industry. Like Mm -hmm. file sharing and all these things are really just eroding a lot of their business. And it takes the wind out of this release so much that the song is actually not released in the United States as a single. It's only released overseas. Really? I didn't know that. Yeah. It it was actually withdrawn as the single. And um, even overseas, it doesn't perform as well as When Love Takes Over did overseas. After that, the approach changes. And there's this, there are reports that, you know, she's trying to kind of divide her attention between a core R&B urban audience and also a dance pop audience. So this is the point where she releases two different singles simultaneously. She releases Rose Colored Glasses to um pop radio mm-hmm. and then she releases grown woman to urban radio mm-hmm. um rose colored glasses is esther dean and dr luke so that's the songwriting team that brought you firework by katie perry mm-hmm. grown woman is a neo song they were really different yeah very different songs neither of them neither of them really hit the mark no and then you have commander in the mix too i don't understand <laughs> yeah like... and i mean th- and this is after commander and i i will say that like I can see the direction that Rose Colored Glasses was trying to take her mm-hmm. in sort of a lighter pop movement. Grown Woman, obviously Neo had done like Irreplaceable for Beyonce. Mm-hmm. It, it just didn't have the hard hitting feel that I would think of as being necessary for a successful like urban R&B single. Mm-hmm. Notably, like neither of those two singles even appear on the album. Oh, I think this was still at the time I was getting... Uh, speaking of leaks, I was I was downloading a lot of music. And so I had the single, I mean, I had the tracks on my computer, mm-hmm. but it didn't, I don't think I paid attention to what was actually released. So that's interesting because I knew them, but I, I just assumed they were on the album. So this kind of gets into something that I think of as part of like the core of what happens with Kelly Rowland's solo career is that either she or her managers or her record label They seem to constantly be second guessing themselves in terms of trying to figure out like what's the formula that is going to make Kelly Rowland a certified hit maker Mm -hmm. in the way that other artists kind of they find their niche. They find something that will always work for them as a lead single. Like the one example that I can think of off the top of my head is Pink. I think that Pink or her record label or her management, they always realize like a lead single for Pink needs to be kind of a wild silly party song with like a pun in it right yeah like raise your glass or whatever it was like blow me one last kiss like very very cheeky silly party songs let's get the party started like all those songs from pink 
I think that those just served to kind of blast her into the pop stratospheres. Even if the rest of her album content was maybe more serious, she had a lot more like... I don't want to say like good songs, but to me, like I like her lead singles less than the follow-up singles. Like glitter in the air. They're just better songs to me, you know? Mm -hmm. Once she realized that formula, it was like, let's just keep doing it because it's working, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that Kelly Rowland has struggled to find that formula and stick to it. When she finds success with When Love Takes Over, it's like, oh, people want EDM from me. I'm going to put out Commander. Commander didn't work. Yeah. Even after this period of time, then she she changes course immediately, right? Mm-hmm. After Commander fails to take hold, I think she goes back to the studio and she records some new tracks that are much heavier, much more urban, much more R&B. And she releases the single in the United States, uh, Motivation. And Motivation is her biggest solo hit since, you know, her first album at this point. Yeah. And then I think she tries to replicate that success in the album after that with Kisses Down Low. Kisses Down Low doesn't do as well as Motivation, right? So she's trying these things out. She's like, oh, people love me for this. I'm going to do this again. And it doesn't work for her. And I don't, I don't really get it, you know? I, I, I find myself sometimes, so I love, I love the song Motivation. And it walks a fine line of being sexy and too explicit, mm-hmm. but it's playful in a way. Kisses Down Low is just thirsty. Yeah. Right? Like, I, I think, I think like, she veers to... I find myself... Look, even now, I'm, like, clutching my pearls thinking about that song. <laughs> I'm just like... <laughs> Kisses Down... Jason, she means she likes to be kissed on her neck. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, <laughs> Meanwhile, in motivation, she's talking about, like, I don't want to feel my legs. <laughs> yeah, she wants to do... She wants to do a bunch of air squats with her boyfriend for three hours. <laughs> I mean, we see this with, 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 with artists... It's a tale as old as time. Trying to figure out like who are they, what are they like, and then yeah. and I think sometimes as an audience, you 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 start to think, well, I love this singer. They have an excellent voice, but maybe their taste isn't so good. Yeah. So, you know, she has this trouble finding a solid formula for herself, and so everything is constantly being reworked. Her second album gets shelved and reworked. Her third album gets shelved and reworked. You know. I wonder how much like that lack of confidence translates to audiences. I mean, there's a mug famously that says you have the same 40 or 24 hours. You have the same 24 hours in a day as Beyonce. Basically the implication being that like you can do what she does. Imagine if Beyonce was basically your older sister, your Mm -hmm. bandmate, your friend. Also in over this period, Beyonce is not just popular and rising. Like, she's ascending, right? Mm-hmm. While these things are happening, like, she is the banner, the standard bearer, I should say, right? For, mm-hmm. like, this kind of music. And being Kelly, and, like, you don't have access maybe to the same teams, certainly not the same PR. That was also the time she had that really in-depth interview about how she'd been in kind of an abusive relationship. And, yeah. you know, there's all of these things, and you're like... Yeah, like, she had no confidence. Mm-hmm. And not even no confidence, even if she was confident, like, to your point, like, when she wanted to make a decision, it didn't work out for her. But, like, how much of that was beyond her control? And how much of that is just because, like, one of your best friends in your life is Beyonce. Yeah. And you can't do the same thing. Like, you you couldn't even look at her as a model. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you.
when we talk about Kelly Rowland and living in Beyonce's shadow, you know, you talked about like Beyonce's self-assuredness in releasing her solo material. She was willing to go out and release albums that I think when they first came out were not the things that we were used to hearing. Mm-hmm. I remember when B-Day came out that our friend Eric hated that album. He probably still hates that album. Well, he was famously passed out through the entire B-Day concert. So (laughs) so I I would say that's an indictment. But even in listening to that album, I feel like he did not like those songs. And it was because it was very different sounding from Dangerously in Love. Even with when when, um, Dangerously in Love came out and Crazy in Love was the lead single. And I remember hearing that for the first time and it was unlike anything that was on the radio at the time with those yeah. horns and that. Until One Thing by Amory came until out. Until One Thing by Amory and then. Until Take until take This Ring by uh, Tony Braxton came out. Mm-hmm. That and guy was out there selling the fish oil to all the artists. <laughs> <laughs> and it only worked for one. But but I remember hearing that song. Snake like, oil. I snake do- oil. He was selling snake oil. oil. <laughs> They're going to live forever. Um you know, their livers are doing really well. But <laughs> but um, there was something about those songs that, like, at the time, I was like, I do not get this song. Yeah. But I guarantee you it will be everywhere and I will like it in a few months. And it influenced people that came after her. It did. But I think what it also did was she creates platforms for performance. Because where Beyonce shines is she sells her material through performance. Yes. And she went on like a blitzkrieg and, 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 and few artists have the support to do that, like to do that yeah. well. And, you know, you were talking about, you know, Kelly Rowland leaving Matthew Knowles' company. The reason that it, he never benefited any of the other artists is because all of that energy went into Beyonce. And that's, yeah. that's how she has that self-assuredness, right? Mm-hmm. I think it's interesting for you to talk about the fact that like a lot of those Beyonce songs were really catering towards like the performance factor of Mm -hmm. those songs. Mm -hmm. Right. Because I think previously in talking about Kelly Rowland, you had talked about seeing her live Mm -hmm. that she cannot command a crowd. Yeah. Ironic commander. (laughs) (laughs) But I think that is a great strength for Beyonce in terms of distinguishing her from Kelly Rowland. And this will go into what I think Kelly Rowland's actual strengths are, is that Beyonce has a voice that can carry those arena filling songs. Kelly Rowland cannot do that. Mm. I think that the best thing about Kelly Rowland's voice is the intimacy of it and the quiet control that she has over her voice. Mm. She has a beautiful voice. Yeah, she has a beautiful voice, but it's a voice that I think is best heard in a quiet, intimate type of recording. Even if it's a dance track, when you listen to the verses to love, when love takes over her, her voice is kind of quiet. It's a soft, intimate vocal over an EDM track. It's not shouting. It's not an anthemic. Yeah. Unlike Beyonce, who can essentially scream and still sound like she's singing and singing well. When Kelly Rowland hits those high points of like when love takes over or even like motivation, when she goes into the like, I don't want to feel my legs part of motivation mm-hmm. or when love takes over part of when love takes over, her voice breaks down live. It's almost breathy. She really sounds like she's screaming to try and fill the arena <laughs> in a way that you don't hear on a studio recording of that song. Yeah. Yeah. Because she doesn't, she's not trying to fill an arena. She's just trying to fill like a recording studio at that point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think that's 
unfortunate for her as like a pop star because obviously like a huge part of being a pop star is wanting to fill those arenas but i was gonna i don't know if i should make this illusion because it's so obscure basically in the in the reality series are you the girl with t-boss and chili oh my god when they were seeking a, uh, a temporary replacement for lisa left eye lopez it got down to like the final two one was this girl named mira one was this girl named oh so crispy <laughs> don't ask <laughs> sorry i'm just i don't know why because now and i the, remember you talking about this before the two girls I'll never forget the, that name and the two girls that kind of made it to the very end could not have been more different Right. Oso Crispy was actually like almost a Lisa Left Eye Lopez clone. She had kind of a high pitched nasal voice. Okay. This girl, Mira, she had a, a pretty beautiful singing voice and her rap flow was like real soft and smooth. And in the show, I don't know why I remember this so clearly. Chili is doing her like commentary outside and she's like, oh, it's such a tough decision. She's like, Mira who does these like real easy, soft, but very cool vocals. He's like, that's a like cool Modi. Oso Crispy is like Busta Rhymes. <laughs> and so it's that spectrum of like, can your voice project? Yeah. Can it be loud and still be aesthetically pleasing? Mm-hmm. And I think that Kelly Rowland suffers from that. Yeah. So do you like Command? I mean, should we go back and listen to Commander? Yeah, let's let's talk. Let's let's return to our subject <laughs> at hand. <laughs> Kelly Rowland's 2010 single Commander. I think that this song is a really great song, and I think it was very overlooked at the time that it came out. I think that the two follow-up singles that they quickly rushed out to try and, like, quote-unquote, save this album were inferior to this song. You know, I think that there was a path that she could have made a pure EDM album. Yeah. Well, and what's interesting about that is it also goes to show that, like, she was let down by her team. Mm -hmm. Because she had had the instincts to do When Love Takes Over before anyone thought it was a good idea. And then, you know, when Commander comes out and it doesn't take off or or doesn't perform as well as they'd hoped, her team's the one potentially that released two completely different singles, which which for, for an audience, you're like, wait, who is Kelly Rowland? Like, what is she trying to do? And that affects your view. Yeah. And it's hard to tell because I think Kelly Rowland is such a well-media trained artist that she will go to the media and really stand by everything at the time that it's happening, regardless of whether or not it's actually her decision. You know, mm-hmm. she says like, oh, she amicably parted ways with Columbia, even if that wasn't the truth at the time. It's only later that she reveals the truth. Mm-hmm. You know, she says, I don't want to alienate my urban audiences I, I with this dance music. Do we know if that's really how she felt or if it was that just the talking point that she was given? She's the second lead vocalist of Destiny's Child. Was that a talking point that she was given or is that what she truly believed, you know? Yeah. So it it becomes really hard to actually decipher, like, what does Kelly Rowland really think? You know, until much later, you know, I think that she'll become, she becomes more candid over time about stuff that happened in the past. But when it's happening in the present, she very much stands by a particular narrative. Mm. So when it comes to this song, personally, I wish that this had dictated like the future movements of her music. So this song is identified as like one of the best songs to like work out to. And Mm -hmm. I will say that having run half marathons and marathons for a while, this is a song that always got me going during a race. Mm -hmm. Again, it's that four on the floor hard hitting beat Mm -hmm. there's there's something so motivational about it and just like uplifting about it it really gets me going in contrast to another song that i erroneously put on my marathon training list which is um 
Run the World, Beyonce, which is not a good, which is not a good song for running a marathon because the beat is so irregular that you're just running with stank leg, like the whole time trying to catch the beat. Well, and what's funny is because of that, I think I used to listen to your playlist. And so I would go running through Hancock Park and just, I'm like, oh my God, the song. It's got too much swagger to run to. Yeah, because you try to make too many steps and do the little, yeah. you know. Anyway, it's a shame that Kelly didn't get to benefit in the way from her sort of groundbreaking role in, mm-hmm. in bringing EDM to U.S. audience, main, U.S. mainstream audiences in the way that, as you mentioned, Sia. Akon. Um, Akon. And, and I, w- I want to say. Usher. Usher and Rihanna. Right, mm-hmm. because when when Usher released what was the name of the song? Um, Without you. Without you, and then Rihanna did uh, "Where Have You Been" with Calvin Harris. And oh, what's the other song? She no, she did. She um, did "Diamonds" with Sia. Did, did, but only girl in the world. Yes, yes, only girl in the world. That solidified it, and yeah. they became huge. I mean, even bigger. I mean, arguably, it helped Rihanna transition into like the next phase of her career, because we talked about her, like, I think way back about how I felt that she'd been, like, foisted upon us. And I felt like yeah. we finally found the solution. And, you know, even with Usher, it was like, look, if Usher is doing this, then it's here to stay. It's it's unfortunate that they are more popularly credited with moving the needle. Yeah, when it was really was Kelly Rowland. And, um, you know, I, I had a friend at the time who was like, why do you keep trying to make Kelly Rowland happen? <laughs> And I was like, she's really good. Like, she, you know, I I, I really like her. Um, yeah. I, I like a lot of her songs. I mean, it is it is funny. It, you know, even as a fan, you come across the thing where, like, if you were to put together a playlist of Kelly Rowland, it'd be all over the place. You know, it would definitely not be the same kind of music from track to yeah. track. But, but you know, it it's, it's still fun. So, yeah. yeah. She deserves a listen. Again, like, this is one of my favorite songs to work out to. I think it's genuinely a good song. So I think people should give Kelly Rowland a chance. She's still making music. Uh, She's out there. Give her a listen, right? (laughs) She's out there. Give her a listen. (laughs) Right. Let's take a break. And when we come back, we'll move on to your song by Mary J. Blige. So we're back. And today I'm going to talk about Mary J. Blige's 2014 song, Whole Damn Year, which was the third single from her album, The London Sessions, um, a moment of musical exploration from one of music's biggest artists. And so who is Mary J. Blige? For anyone who doesn't know, Mary J. Blige is the queen of hip hop soul. So Mary J. Blige was famously discovered in 1991 after she recorded an Anita Baker cover in a mall recording booth. And her mom's boyfriend at the time knew an A&R guy, gave it to that guy who showed it to the guy who ended up helping to get her a deal. So she's like the first female artist signed to this um, upstart label. She goes on over the course of her career to release 13 studio albums, eight of which have achieved multi-platinums worldwide sales. Um, She sold over 50 million albums in the U.S., 80 million records worldwide. She's won nine Grammys, four American Music Awards, 12 Billboard Music Awards, and also received three Golden Globe nominations, including one for her supporting role in the film Mudbound and another for its song, Mighty River. 
She's also received a nomination for Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress and Best Original Song, becoming the first person nominated for acting and songwriting in the same year, something Beyonce wishes that she had. <laughs> in 92 was when she released her first album, What's the 411, which was iconic. Her 1994 album, My Life, is among Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Albums of All Time and Time Magazine's All-Time 100 Albums. Billboard ranked Mary J as the most successful female R&B and hip-hop artist of the past 25 years. And in 2017, Billboard magazine named her 2006 song, Be Without You, which I kind of forgot about, um, as the most... Uh, Call the radio <laughs> if you just can't be without you. Oh my God, we're going to have to Wait, and then she holds... She hold- she holds her hand up to her face like a phone. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, we're going to have to pay royalties on that little snippet there. Um, I'll cut it out. <laughs> no, leave it in. As the most, it was the most successful R&B hip hop song of all time as it spent an unparalleled 15 weeks atop the hot R&B hip hop songs chart and over 75 weeks on the chart. And this is something I also didn't know. She ties Mariah for female artists with the most top 10 hits. Oh, wow. Which I feel like she's not out there in every interview, like Mariah Carey talking about that. Um, I mean, you know, again, it's that thing that Mary J. Blige, she just transcends those comparisons. Like Mariah has the voice. She has the talent. Mary J. Blige. And I think this leans into like why her acting career has been a little bit more successful. Mm -hmm. Mary J. Blige can make you feel something. Yes. Like her superpower is in conveying emotion. Mm -hmm. Right. And like just fully inhabiting every song. So like, you know, her signature sound is a combination of soulful vocals over hip hop beats and it heavily influenced contemporary R&B. I think, you know, it's easy to forget that that did not exist in the early 90s. You were either a soul R&B artist like an Anita Baker or like a Luther Vandross, right? Like, Mm -hmm. or you were like a Whitney that was sort of had R&B stylings, but was doing pop. Pop, yeah. But you did not have someone with the voice of Aretha Franklin singing over a hip-hop beat. Hmm. That just, that that didn't exist. And so, you know, she had this sort of signature of like angry or heartbroken songs of being wronged, but also a lot of resilience. So her first couple singles, Real Love and I'm Going Down, you know, amazing. Uh, I'm Going Down, I think, honestly introduced me to Shaka Khan because I didn't, it's a Shaka Khan song, I think. Wait, wasn't... Um, oh my God, am I going to like out myself as like just a fraud? Is I'm Going Down... No, I'm Going Down is not the, the Shaka Khan song. The Shaka Khan song was... Um, no, 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 yeah, yeah, you're, you're right, you're right, you're right, you're right, you're right. Thinking of... Um, this is the problem. I don't know Mary J. Blige that well. It's yeah, no, 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 no. I have broad. it in here, but... Anyway, we can cut that out. Anyway, Real Love, I'm Going Down. Sweet Thing. Sweet Sorry. Thing, yes. Sorry, she covered Sweet Thing. That's what I meant. Oh my god! Sorry I to interrupt to you. I know we list. were going to cut that, but no, 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 no! You don't have to cut it. I'm... I was singing it last night. I was like, <laughs> oh, I was listen- revisiting all these Mary hits, and I was like, oh yeah, like this one. Anyway, see, keep but going. it's funny. My parents had Chaka Khan, a Rufus and Chaka Khan albums, but I'd never really listened to them. secular music. I, well, it was like we were we were allowed to listen to things up until I don't know, nineteen seventy nine. Oh, that's then, right, that's right. You had like a blackout on secular music after yeah, the 70s. after after the seventies. It was like that was no longer acceptable. <laughs> um, so then you know, there's not gonna cry, which is the you know signature ballad from Waiting to Exhale, which was a moment in pop culture history at the time, the movie in the video, you know, plays a montage of clips from the movie, iconically 
uh, Angela Bassett setting her husband's car on fire. Mm-hmm. I also had the single to not go and cry. <laughs> and and the B-side, I love B-sides. The B-side was Shaka Khan doing My Funny Valentine. Oh. So good. So good. Her collaboration with Method Man, uh, I'll Be There For You, You're All I Need To Get By, which was mm-hmm. a cover of the Marvin Gaye and Tammy Terrell song, earned them a Grammy and it changed my life because... This was the first rap song that I ever knew the lyrics to. And I could sing her part in her key. And so, like, at the time, I mean, maybe this was, like, just before puberty, so that might have affected it. But (laughs) I died. I didn't know you could combine rap and singing. Mm -hmm. Because I don't think they'd really done that either, like, so completely. And then Mary J with, like, her blonde hair, the sunglasses. She was, like, the baddest bitch I knew. And it, it helps to kind of contextualize like who her contemporaries were at the time. So like at the time, early nineties, you have like En Vogue and TLC, mm-hmm. which are, you know, they're kind of hip hop or kind of poppy R and B, but not hip hop R and B or hip hop soul. Um, you have boys to men, you have SWV. Mm-hmm. Faith Evans is probably the closest you get to say maybe more hip hop soul R and B, but like nowhere near luminosity. <laughs> You have Janet, who's doing kind of her own thing. And then on the other side, who I also love, you have Whitney and Mariah, who were like so, had the power, had the emotive capability of, of Mary J, I think, like to some, could match some of that, but were like scrubbed so clean. They had none of the swag, right? That Mary J had, like she was, like she was like a beast. Like she just come out, she like, like the way her stance, her posture, just everything was just so forceful. Mm-hmm. Um, she makes her debut at the 1997 Grammys, so it's the first time she's performed at the Grammys, in a Waiting to Exhale medley with Aretha, Whitney, Brandy, Shaka Khan, and CeCe Winans, which is amazing. I thought she was, like, gonna go off key, but she she did perfectly. (laughs) Her Divas Live 1999 duet with Whitney, covering Aretha's Ain't No Way, is iconic. Um, Both of them in red leather and sweaty as all hell. Um, (laughs) I remember watching that, again, while folding clothes with my mom in the living room. And uh, that introduced me to Ain't No Way, which is one of my favorite Aretha songs. I did not, I'd never heard that song before. And to hear these two, like, Mary J and Whitney on it. it was amazing and then in the 2002 she had another legendary performance at the grammys doing no more drama which was a huge hit for her but you know fully channeling just that emotion and like bringing that to the mainstream and that's kind of the point where you really see her start to break through into like pop audiences yeah yeah it was like she'd been very much a successful hip-hop soul artist And it wasn't like she was doing pop, but it was, yeah, the mainstreaming of sort of her sound. And like, yeah, she broke through. Like, yeah, to your point, she broke through. The lines were blurring a little bit right at that point in time that allowed music like that to be heard on like Top 40 radio. Exactly. Exactly. And being that she performed this song at the Grammys, it just opened her up to a whole new audience. And it's an iconic performance. I will post the link. I'll post the link to all of these, but they're fantastic. Um, That was in 2002. And I'm not even talking about, there were six albums between then and 2014. And so I'm skipping over Be Without You. Um, There was Just Fine, which was another single, which was huge for her. But after 2009, sort of her hits started to be a little more spotty, right? She she released another album and it did not do that well. It, It just kind of 
became this sort of stagnant period for her. Mm-hmm. So we talked about last week or in the last episode, Sam Smith and Disclosure. So in like 2012, they'd released their song Latch in the UK and it became a huge hit. You know, just like you were talking about with Kelly Rowland, you know, EDM is like becoming a force. It's It fits and starts as breaking into the mainstream. And so Sam Smith and Disclosure released Latch in 2012, becomes a huge hit and ends up being released as their uh, lead single in the US in February of 2014. As it gains popularity in the UK and Europe, Mary J records a remix of the song F For You, which was a song on Disclosure's album that originally had no guest vocal. It was the only one that didn't have a guest vocal. So Latch comes out and immediately after they release this second single, F For You with Mary J Blige. And it starts to be a really big success for her too. Mm -hmm. And it's really intriguing because to this point, like, Everything I've talked about, Mary J. Blige is just hip-hop soul. And she's like this diva with who's known for just always being kind of sad and like broken, right? And like Mm -hmm. fighting and like struggling with, you know, depression and disappointment and loss. And she's a very hard, it comes across as a very hard figure. Yeah. Even in performance, I feel like she's the, she like stomps around. Yeah. Heaves her body when she's performing, you know? Yeah, yeah, that's what I mean. Like, she's like a force. And Disclosure and Latch, like, all of a sudden you hear her voice within this sort of slick electro-pop sort of dance, right? And similar to how Kelly Rowland was in When Love Takes Over and Commander and what we saw with Brianna and then Usher, there's a beautiful way where you can put that together and it just transforms sort of the sound, right? And, And takes you to a different place. So inspired by this, Mary J., she initially wanted to record an EP with Disclosure. What that ends up being is in July of that year, so February it comes out, in July of that year, she decides, I'm going to move to London and I'm going to record all new music and I'm going to just kind of uproot myself Mm -hmm. and try something completely different. So she moves to London in July and spends a month there recording with a host of young British acts, including, again, Disclosure, Naughty Boy, Emily Sandy and Sam Smith, who his debut album had come out that July. So he's starting to pick up. So for the first time, like it's like a very different group of collaborators. Mm-hmm. You know, there's that sort of Brit soul, Brit pop, Brit rock. Mm-hmm. The, the, it, it's, it is funny. Like the Rolling Stones started out like covering black artists in the U S and like, there's, there's an interesting way that soul gets filtered through the Brits sometimes. Yeah. And it's weird because it, it almost evolves overseas on a different cycle than it does here. Yes. Sometimes when we hear it here, it's total, a total failure. Yeah. But sometimes you hear stuff like, I mean, when Amy Winehouse crossed over, it was, Mm -hmm. it was like, Oh, like this is happening in the UK. Yeah. This is amazing. You know? And it's the, those moments in time where the crossovers happen that you're like, Oh, something different's happening elsewhere. Yeah. And that, and that's exactly what Mary J wanted. She wanted that that sort of fresh perspective. They wrote 10 songs in a month. And um, Rodney Jerkins, who is this iconic producer, has produced Mary J in the past, produced Brandy, Janet, Whitney, Destiny's Child. He executive produced the whole album and was really oh. excited about the new London influence. So she basically took like someone she knew and someone who was successful with like R&B, hip hop, pop in the U.S., 
had familiarity with her and kind of oversaw her work with a whole new set of people. And he said at the time, you know, you have so much music, like different music here, variety births the next generation. In California, the music kind of feels all the same. That 90s house vibe you have right now, it feels fresh. Dancing, celebrating, feeling good about life. We're making a Mary J. Blige record, but she can introduce new styles to the world. So, you know, he was completely on board. And in the same interview, Mary J. kind of goes on and she said, you know, our idea was to become part of London, to really embrace the culture, to really live in it. The music is free over here the way it used to be in the States. Artists are just free to do what they love. Listening to the radio, you can hear the freedom and the music is living and breathing. So I feel like to some extent she's, you know, she's coming off kind of a slump. Mm -hmm. She's coming off of like a career that's sort of defined by struggle and, you know, all of that. And, and it coming through in really powerful music that resonated with her audience. But yeah, doesn't sound like it was personally fulfilling anymore. I mean, this is just my my broad view of her music prior to this, kind of that 2002 to 2012 era, is that her music kind of got stuck. She mm-hmm. hit those hits in the early 2000s. And moving into the 2010s, it hadn't changed very much for yeah. her. Yeah. And I think that she was primed for that. Well, you know, you talk about Kelly Rowland and trying to find a formula. Mary J had a formula that worked, but Mm -hmm. as the musical landscape started shifting, it was less effective, Mm -hmm. right? And and you're also seeing at the time, like, even as artists kind of try to take advantage of the shifts and explore sort of new directions for themselves, they have hits and misses too. It's not guaranteed it's going to be a success. And so, you know, all of this is going on at the same time as, as she's deciding to do this. So... You know, they're in London for a month to record, and the resulting album is called The London Sessions, and it's released in November of 2014, so only four months later. I mean, if you think about how long it takes to do an album, she recorded and released a, a completely new direction with F4U in February. Five months later, she decides she's going to go to London. Mm-hmm. She goes to London for a month, and four months after that, she releases a whole new album. It's called The London Sessions. It's a completely new sound. You know, the hip hop beats that defined her career to that point are replaced by Britpop and, you know, from cool electro dance pop to doo-wop to soulful ballads that are like set through like a Brit soul filter. Yeah. There's a difference in the sound. It sounds almost joyful. It's not heavy. There's something very appropriate about the idea of this being like a sessions album. Yeah. Because a lot of the songs in particular sound just so... Like you could be in the room with her listening to these songs being performed like full band yeah. live and listening to these. And they have that freshness to them that a lot of her previous stuff lacked because it was so polished. It was so in the studio, so precise. Yeah. And you, do, you don't get the sense that she collaborated with the musicians themselves that much in her previous. Like like she she's always written, mm-hmm. but she's mostly performed. Right. And so like someone... I mean, this, I, I didn't I didn't do the research on like her previous albums and like how involved she was in the studio, but it's to your point, it's not a session. And so when they did this, they did this in these famous R.A.K. studios. And basically they did. They just sat around and wrote and recorded in the same room and just all performed together. And it feels organic. Mm-hmm. It feels it's not gritty in the way that a lot of her stuff is, mm-hmm. but it doesn't take away. It doesn't feel strong scrubbed clean in the way that say like a Mariah or a Whitney where like it kind of took away a lot of the soul. Mm -hmm. They found a way to do it and it it brought this joy 
which again is not something that's usually associated with Mary J. Blige. I mean, one of the jokes is like, I don't want a happy Mary J. Blige. I want a sad Mary J. Blige because when she's happy, like you don't get the best work from her. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of a common refrain, right? And this song, this album, The London Sessions was a revolution. And so that brings me to my song, which is Whole Damn Year. Um, this song was co-written by Emily Sandy or Emily Sunday. I'm not sure how to pronounce it. Sunday. Sunday. And Knox Brown. Um, Emily is an amazing vocalist and songwriter. Mm-hmm. She'd written this song and she talks about how like she never felt comfortable singing it. But in the songwriting sessions, when she brought it to Mary Jane, she heard her. She realized like it truly found a home. Yeah. It sounds like something Mary J. Blige would say, like whole damn year. Right. Yeah, the whole damn year. And it's it's this it's a piano, it's a simple like piano accompaniment, down tempo drum beat. It doesn't focus on a breakup, but rather the aftermath, right? The the lyrics, winter turned most of my heart, spring punched me right in the stomach, right? Like it's 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 very visceral. It took a whole damn year to repair my body. It took a whole damn year. And it's funny because, you know, as I <laughs> The, the lead singles for the album were disclosed were like disclosure songs. So, you know, you have F for You at the beginning of the year, and then you have Right Now, which is a disclosure song on the album. Mm. The, you know, the Therapy came out, and it's not really a dance song, but it is more kind of doo-woppy. It was written um, by, uh, it was co-written by Sam Smith and one of the guys, Jimmy Napier, who had written a lot of Sam Smith stuff. It, you know, it has like a kind of a doo-woppy sort of barbershop quartet sort of feel to it. Those are the <laughs> first two singles in the in the in, in the US. And I think people got really scared mm-hmm. because it was so different. Yeah. Just based on those just based on those lead singles. Just based on those two. And they were like, what is happening? As good as those th- songs are, whole damn year is completely different. It's it's mm-hmm. essentially classic Mary J. Oh, yeah. So completely channeling pain and emotion. It's beautiful. It's heart-wrenching. And it's relatable. Because, like, who hasn't been there in the year after a breakup or, like, an extremely painful experience? And, like, you know, you define those, the seasons almost by your pain. And it was similar to some of her best work. Yeah. Like I said, it's, like, it's exactly, like, what you expect from a Mary J. But with this beautiful piano accompaniment, it just serves to, like, underline each point that she's making. And I remember driving to work. I, I would listen to it driving to work in the morning. And I don't know why <laughs> I do that to myself. Like, what a way to start the day. But um, actually, I do know. I had gone through a really bad breakup basically the year before or a couple years before. And I think just not being nostalgic for it, but like reminding myself of that time in my life. Mm-hmm. So... The album comes out end of 2014. It receives almost unanimous critical acclaim. Mm-hmm. It made the LA Times top 10 list. It was NPR's 50 favorite albums of 2014, Rolling Stone, 20 best R&B albums of 2014, Billboard top 10 R&B album, uh, Chicago Tribune was like the best albums of 2014. Complex loved it. Pitchfork loved it. New York Times said it was the top 10, one of, in the top 10 albums and songs of 2014. Time Magazine said it was one of the seven most underrated pop albums of the year. But were any of these part of her core audience? No. And I think I think the closest you get is Complex. 
Yeah. I mean, when you get like, when you get pitchfork on your side, yeah. it's, yeah. it can be very polarizing, I think. Well, and you know what's really interesting? And we're going to talk about this in a second. Complex and Pitchfork both love this album. It doesn't do well, right? It Like, U.S. audiences are completely scared off by the dance singles. This Brit soul worked for Amy Winehouse, worked for Sam Smith, was not working for Mary J. Blige, which is a shame because this is a beautiful album. I listened to it again this week. I feel like it has really, it has aged very well. It feels very current. And to your point, like, there's something about it that I'm like, this feels like early Mary. Yeah. It's different, you know, it's different musically, but something about the emotion in some of those songs, again, not like the dance tracks, but like something about some of these, like, like Whole Damn Year. I'm like, uh-huh. this is a song that I could imagine her having done in like the 90s. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it has a freshness to it in the way that she was fresh at the time. But, you know, it just, it didn't work. So, you know, that album kind of drops off the charts very quickly. It debuted at number nine on the Billboard 200, number one on the top R&B hip hop albums. But in the second week of sale, it dropped to number 25. And then by the third week, it was number 46. And uh, the total copies it sold were like 109,000. Like, Jeez. like it was an abysmal failure. That's all the NPR listeners. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Exactly. And because this wasn't a hit, in 2017, three three years later, she returned to a familiar R&B hip-hop soul formula with Strength of a Woman. Mm-hmm. You know, she worked with classic, like, R&B hip-hop names, Jasmine Sullivan and Kay Trinata. Um, It featured Kanye, Missy Elliott, DJ Khaled, Quavo. Went back to the, to the pool. Yeah. Also, between this time... 2014 and 2017, she went through a very painful and messy divorce from her husband and manager, Kendu Isaacs. And many of the songs on Strength of a Woman end up being more cathartic. And so one of the things I think that it didn't mention with the London sessions was it did still talk about pain and it talks about loss and it talks about sort of struggle because it was before the actual divorce. All of those issues are like percolating. And Mm -hmm. so... You have a lot of the struggle, but none of the catharsis. And so Strength of a Woman comes out and she's like unleashed. And she's back in in her, you know, more classic style. Yeah. And that format sort of allows her to let loose because as emotive as London sessions were, they're not explosive, right? Like it's not, mm-hmm. it's not that fiery foot stomping, stage stomping, body heaving Mary J., Right. Yeah. And she kind of comes back to that here in Strength of the Woman. They really go back to it. Like I'm looking at the album art now and I'm like, they really took a hard U turn. Uh huh. Said, let's get the photographers that we used yep. to work with. Let's get your signature back as your your title treatment on your album. Yeah, no no cold sans serif fonts. Get rid of those fonts. No black and white photography. <laughs> Make your blonde wig look platinum. Yep, yep, yep. Go back to that. And and so London Sessions debuted at number nine. This album debuts at number three on the Billboard 200. It's her highest charting album since 2009 and also marked a significant spike in album sales. When Pitchfork reviewed Strength of a Woman, they characterized it as, quote unquote, a relief Hmm. for, for her to return to form. Basically saying, quote, after a career peppered with songs detailing her abusive relationships and substance addiction, she appeared to find a plateau you know, and uncovered the happiness she deserved. She closed the chapter on those tumultuous years 
untethering her enough that she could, on part of 2014's acclaimed The London Sessions, finally manifest as the classic house diva she deserved to be, free and exultant and unburdened by BPMs. However, strength of a woman's classicism is, in some ways, a relief, despite the success of the London Sessions' more modern tracks. In an era of young R&B acts that bury their vocals in hazy gossamer production to the detriment of cohesion, it's refreshing to hear Blige sticking with what she knows. And I bring this up because we keep returning to this narrative of the audience is not ready, and the media even if we agree with them, don't know what to make when someone does something different. Mm-hmm. And someone as iconic as Mary J. Blige, even when she does something that's critically acclaimed that's completely outside of her comfort zone, they still welcome, they still kind of, oh, we prefer this other way. Yeah. It's interesting that like Pitchfork would kind of turn on its heels a little bit. It almost sounds like they're saying like, oh, we just want Mary J. Blige when she's suffering and when she's doing music like this. And and that's I guess my my point. It's like it's it's where we've we've created this this narrative. Yeah. You know, because the New York Times goes on to call her like essentially a virtuos a virtuoso of suffering. It's like we love your genuine emotion. We love your genuine artistic expression as long as it's this. <laughs> exactly. And you know, the Guardian said Mary's back as if she like mm-hmm. had not been, and said you know she showed how good her vocals can sound atop cool electronic British beats, but now she's back where she belongs. And it's it's this like, let's put her back in the box that we're yeah. comfortable with. We're, you know, and I listened to Strength of a Woman and um, I had remembered hearing the first single of that and just being like, mm. it just wasn't my style. What was the first single? It was Thick of It. And okay. I just didn't like it. It sounded dated to me at the time. Again, because I live now in a Spotify New Music Friday world. Or I'm hearing like Kilani, right? Or I'm hearing like her. And in my mind, I'm thinking that like, okay, that's where all R&B is going. And then mm-hmm. Mary J comes out with like, no, 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 no. This is R&B hip hop, right? She's yeah. like, this is what it is. And I'm like, I don't like it. And it becomes a number three. And it's like her best selling album in almost a decade. And so yeah. clearly I'm out of step with what her audience likes, right? So then we went back and I listened to the album all the way through and I have to say, it's it's an again, it's these these singles where like I didn't like the single, but I started listening to the the actual album, and I'm like, this is pretty good. Hmm. I don't know that I would necessarily just throw it on, but in listening to it, I was like, this is a really good album too. Like she, the songwriting is great. I feel like the London sessions kind of opened her up to a new process, and she's channeling all of the things that make her great on Strength of a Woman as well. So she'd gone through the divorce, and now this album is like a fuck you. <laughs> like, this is, I'm here for me, you're nothing. Yeah. And she's triumphing over it, and like fighting to triumph over it. As, as, as much as it's like, it's about her struggle, there's an exultant affirmation there. And it's funny, you know, it's funny to think about this album as a return to form, as a huge hit for her, as this big fuck you album. And I'm thinking, you know, back to like Kelly Clarkson, visiting some of those same topics of My December being her kind of fuck you album. Mm -hmm. And that being just not what we're looking for from Kelly Clarkson. Yeah. You know, someone like Kelly Clarkson, we don't actually want to know your true experience. (laughs) 
Yeah, you know, it's funny that you mentioned that because I was listening to um, another podcast, Las Culturistas, and uh, they had they had a, a little. They were talking about different artists, and and they brought up um, my December, and it just not being. It was a great album, but not what her audience wanted, and it was a court. It it was what made her go. Nope. Okay, I need to be a pop rock. Like, I, I need yeah. to do, or, you know, I need to do this. Because um, well, that guy on that, that guy on um, Lost Culturistas, he's like a big Kelly stan, right? Matt Rogers? Yeah. Yeah, he loves her. Yeah. He loves her. And um, so even he was like, yeah, it just didn't, you know, it, 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 what that told her was she needed to stay in this lane or go back to this lane. And I think, you know, it's kind of sad. And I, and I, I would hope that people would go back and, you know, now that we're talking about some of these tracks and, specifically Mary J go back and listen to the London sessions listen to whole damn year it's a beautiful song it's it's the rare moment where someone who's an icon who's been in the public view just kind of bearing their soul for decades it's 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 really satisfying to hear them try something new and mm-hmm. try something new that to my ear is so successful. And it's yeah. unfortunate that it wasn't commercially successful, but I think it will come back. I think yeah. people will come back to this album. All right. Is it, are you, is it, do you have more to say or is it time to take a break? No, I think we're, t- yeah, let, let's go to break. <laughs> All right, let's take a break and we'll be right back. All right, so we're back. Um, Barry, now that we've had a chance to kind of look deeper into Kelly's and Mary J's discography and talk about these songs, what's your takeaway? You know, when I compare and contrast Kelly Rowland and Mary J. Blige, it's really easy for me to see and understand what Mary J. Blige is bringing to music. That even I had difficulty explaining what Kelly Rowland is bringing to music. Despite the fact that I love her and I love her talent, it's still hard for me to define that in her. And in the way that we were talking about Kelly Rowland living so solidly in Beyonce's shadow, more so than any other songstress of the time, because Kelly Rowland physically lived under Beyonce's shadow. You know? <laughs> In that house in Houston, she was probably standing behind Beyonce the whole time versus Mary J. Blige, who transcends those comparisons, you know, and I think that that kind of proves the value of having a strong sense of self or a strong sense of identity in navigating your career, right? We never think about, oh, Mary J. Blige really is nothing compared to Mariah Carey or Mary J. Blige really can't stand up to Whitney Houston, Mary J. Blige versus Beyonce. We don't think about those things with her because there is just something, it's intangible, but I think we've covered a lot of different aspects of what that is about her. She stands apart. Yeah, and what you turn to her for and what you expect from a performance from her versus Kelly Rowland. Mm-hmm. And again, like there's qualities to her voice. It's the intimacy to her voice that I I really am drawn to. But beyond that, I don't know how to translate what I love about her into something that's going to consistently be a hit for her, you know? Yeah. And I think I would just hope that as a person who really enjoys Kelly Rowland and has enjoyed all of these different directions that she's taken, honestly, because I like rose colored glasses. I like commander. I like, I like all of them, right? Like mm-hmm. stole. Stole. We didn't get to talk about stole. We didn't get to talk about someday. stole. 
bonus episode. Um, yeah. But, you know, it's it's like, I would just hope that, like, as she has talked about and kind of coming to terms again with being in Beyonce's shadow and, like, figuring out who she is as an artist and, and like, all of us learning to not compare your progress or your success against other people in your life and recognize that you're on your own journey. I would hope that, like, she she's at a place now where or she, or she gets to a place where she's satisfied with what she's putting out because i think that that's mm-hmm. that's the missing factor like you, you you know you talk about like she she doesn't know which direction to go and it's like what is she you're right like what does she think like is she happy with this and i feel like yeah. with some of the more recent things even if they're a little bit spotty it feels like this is more a direction she wants to go in and she likes and she feels comfortable in yeah there's a level of comfort here and and also a level of um, comfort with the the sound, yeah. Like she like she's more she's more comfortably embodying it in a way that like you hope from an artist. Cool. All right, so I think we are out of time for today. Um, we will see you guys on our next episode, and um, the topic is to be determined. We'll see you guys <laughs> next time. Special thanks to Adam Elder for composing our theme music. Songs and videos featured in today's episode will be posted to our website, flopredeemer.com. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to us on your podcast platform of choice, and check us out on social media at flopredeemer on Instagram and Twitter, and at facebook.com slash flopredeemer. Bye, guys. <laughs>